Alrighty, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Ulster hanging out with what's up, Richie Ote? How are you, my brother? Good to see you. A little fancied up. Yeah, if you watch the video edition of this one, you will see I'm uh, slightly fancied up for the day. I'll uh, I'll share with you. uh, I'll go on. I'll do this. I'll do this share on Reinvention Radio. So you guys will have to come over to the Reinvention Radio podcast to hear why uh, why I'm a little gussied up today. And uh, Mary Goulet. Out in the world doing her thing, and uh, we love her for that. So she'll be back next week with us. Way's got under control in the studio. Kelly's got under control back at headquarters. And here on Beyond Eight Figures, we sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited for more than $10 million or currently run businesses that gross more than $10 million annually and get to the bottom of how they started and scaled and in some cases exited from those businesses. And uh, and, and I got to tell you, you know, when you when you think about where a lot of money is made, you know, for for better or for worse, let, let's be honest here. People sometimes think of medicine. You know, I mean, it's it's gotten to be pretty darn pricey. And the question that I often have is, do individual doctors and uh, and facilities, I mean, do they actually? Do they cash in on this in any real way, or is it just the big conglomerates? And and so it'll be a really interesting conversation today as we sit down uh, with our friend Lori Barr, Dr. Lori Barr, hanging out with us today. Lori, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's such an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, it's great having you here. And, you know, when we, and that, don't take this as a slight, but when we think about medicine, you know, you start thinking about the the people who are getting 15 bucks for an aspirin and the, and the neurosurgeons who are charging, you know, $200,000 for a procedure. And, and so we know that there is money in the industry. And so it only makes sense that there would be an opportunity for someone to not only get paid on a professional level in terms of being a professional in that industry, but also to create a scalable and sustainable business around it that they can then exit from as well without being one of those big, huge corporate conglomerates or, or hospitals. Give us an understanding uh, of, of your role in the world of medicine and what you've done. And then uh, we'll, we'll get into the, the exit and the structure and all of that fun stuff. But just give people an understanding of your background in the medical profession as a whole. I'm a practicing pediatric radiologist uh, from Austin, Texas. I've been practicing medicine for 30 years now and, um, you know, kind of went through the same educational process that all doctors do a little faster than usual. I went through three years of college instead of four and then four years of medical school and then did four years of a radiology residency and then did a fifth year to become a pediatric radiologist. So a lot of time put in for education. And, no, uh, I'm not a math major there, but how many years was that? That was, what was that? That was like 12 years. What was it? 12 years? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Beyond high school. I did go, I did leave high school at 16. So I, cut, I shaved a little off there too. Mm-hmm. I was on the fast track. Wow. And so how did you select pediatric radiology? I mean, it's just such a, a it's, it's such a specific field to, to focus on? How, how did you land on pediatric radiology? Well, to be honest with you, when I was going through med school, the 
the fourth year is where you rotate. I'm sorry, the third year is where you rotate through all all of your rotations, and you get a taste of medicine, you get a taste of surgery, you get a taste of family practice, all these different things. And at the end of the year, I just did not like anything enough to think about spending the next 30 to 40 years doing it. And my two best friends were going into radiology. And I had no interest in radiology because I'd made a B in physics, my only B in college. So I thought I was not radiology material because you had to know so much physics. And then uh, I also didn't like the increased risk of cancer because radiologists mm. have an increased risk of, risk of cancer, lymphoma specifically, at least 5% over the general population. Wow. And they're like, look, at least take the elective with us. You'll have fun. I said, okay, fine. If I'm going to have fun, I'll take the elective. I got on that elective. And what I figured out the very first day was that the people who are in radiology enjoy helping people see how beautiful they are on the inside. And hmm. that, I, it still gives me chill bumps remembering the very first case I saw and the way the technologists and the radiologists interacted with that patient to, to really show him how beautiful he was inside. And that's what I get to do every day with kids. It's amazing. It's just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd imagine too, when someone's going through radiology, it, you don't just do that for no reason. They're going through something significant usually, right? right? Like you're not just, hey, I'm going to go let's, down and yeah, let's go, <laughs> jump let's in put the this child through it just for the hell of it. Yeah. So right. know, to your point of showing them how beautiful they are on the inside, it's probably real traumatic, right? I don't know enough. Maybe you'll get into some of the stats, but I hear a lot of people make the turn when they get the diagnosis or the diagnosis 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 yes yeah. and so it's like to have someone there that's caring and loving while that process is going on is probably pretty important it is important and to be able to share that information in a way they can understand and answer questions because otherwise you know when you show somebody a picture of their body with something bad in it like a cancer that's a mental tattoo you can never get that picture out of your brain so sometimes for people with low self-confidence, it's hard to get over that. They think they are the cancer. They think they are the disease. Like, do you ever hear people say, I'm a diabetic? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, no, you're a person who has a disease, but they yeah. take on the whole thing and they don't have to. So that's uh, what a lot of I do on the other side is help people think better so they get better faster with my Think and Grow Well book. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that here in a second, but... Just, just so I'm clear, and for for the audience' sake here, I mean, radi radiology. So, being a radiologist is is obviously much more specific than a general practitioner. So, as such, I mean, compensation typically then goes hand in hand with specificity, right? As far as as Correct. far as the world of medicine yeah. goes. So as you looked at the the options that you had in terms of where to focus, yes, working with kids, obviously you've got a soft spot for, for kids and, you know, just having the opportunity there to work with the kids. It sounds like you said, you still get the, you know, the goosebumps just thinking about that and all. But in the back of your mind, were you also thinking like, you know, I can I can make some good money doing this, right? I mean, like what was there when, when you look at someone coming out of medical school, was there a pretty big difference at that time in terms of the salary 
that you could make as a pediatric radiologist versus perhaps your peers who were going more into general types of practices? Yes, uh, it was a consideration. And more, more than that, it was actually a lifestyle consideration. When I rotated through radiology, it was very different how, from how radiology is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my practice that I'm in now is it has held the title as the most efficient radiology practice in North America for over 10 years. So we're highly, you know, we're busy. We do a lot of cases. We're very busy when we're working. At that time, when I took that rotation, the academic radiologist I was working with, one would come in at seven, he'd leave at two. He was an avid tennis player. So he played tennis all afternoon. One was like the quintessential academic. He would come in and write books and write books and write books and meet with the residents and you know, that's what I saw as a medical student anyway. So to me, it seemed like a field where you could have a life outside of medicine mm. and make good money and do a good job at assisting people and feeling better. So because of that, it was a win-win for me. Mm-hmm. So when you when you came on board then, what was this, uh, was, it, was it always in, in your way of thinking, was it always in the back of your mind that you were going to tie it because there's never um it it seems like there's a big difference between uh medical practitioners who are entrepreneurs and just medical practitioners who just simply go into to practice medicine right so in your mind did you ever think of yourself in in the way of i'm actually more entrepreneur than i am doctor or was it I'm just going to go ahead and and be a doctor and the business side of it isn't even in your in your mind I'm just curious how how you were thinking about that when I was in medical school I I believed they were two separate things although you have to understand I was raised totally by two entrepreneurs so I just that's who we were Mm -hmm. anyway so it didn't really come to my conscious mind Yet I kept seeing my parents create something out of nothing again and again and again. So that was that was always there. Mm-hmm. For the as far as traditional medicine during the 80s and 90s, you know, when I was first establishing my career, it was very much, oh, I'm a professional. This is not a job. This is a, a calling. You know, it's kind of that thing. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, in the later when I got in after five years in academic practice, I started realizing that the two were related in a different way than I had initially thought and that there were opportunities, even in academics, to leverage money in, in, in great ways to, to have a bigger impact. You know, that's what grant funding is all about mm-hmm. in academics. Mm-hmm. And then once I kind of got clued into that, at the 10-year mark in my career, when I was looking around, which every five years you need to change your position in academics to actually propel yourself through the system and get to the top of the ladder. Uh, when I was looking around, the opportunity that was before me that was the absolute I can't pass this up was a private practice opportunity in, in Austin. They absolutely made me a job offer I couldn't refuse. So good, I could not believe it existed and didn't trust them to be telling me the truth. So I went down there by myself with my four-year-old, left my husband in his job, you know, in Cincinnati, safe and sound, just to make sure they were telling me the truth before I moved our whole family down. Mm-hmm. So, so wait, you got to give us some specifics then. So what? So <laughs> give us give us the comparative analysis. So you were, you were so, you were where, and they were inviting you to go. Like just give, give us okay, the specifics yeah. that made this like 
oh my god like i got I, this is something i have to do okay so i was in cincinnati ohio i yeah. don't know if you ever spent any time in cincinnati beautiful city to raise a family in gray skies about nine months out of the year cold and gloomy and gloomy mm -hmm. because of the gray skies nine months out of the year and instead, sounds like san diego since <laughs> since december i don't know what the hell's going on here maybe we, maybe we switch with cincinnati somehow it's like what's right. going on yes well, but but and i was in an academic practice there at the children's hospital of cincinnati which cincinnati children's is one of the top three children's hospitals in the world so i was in the ivory tower for academics um and it was a great job my salary was commiserate with other academic salaries at that time which means I was making about three hundred thousand a year in academics, mm. uh, in in the you know throughout the nineties, and uh, I was making my way up the academic chain. I was an associate professor, and um, instead, here's this private practice. They've got about forty five partners. They've got a couple of pediatric radiologists, but they're wanting to really build a, a serious children's hospital, and they're trying to secure the contracts with this hospital network that's just taken on ownership of this hospital. So they wanted somebody with leadership experience who understand how to, uh, how to make things happen to come in and shore that up. And so that's why I was hired. And the specifics, so, I mean, 300 K is kind of hard to walk away. And, and like, really, I mean, in Cincinnati, yeah, I mean, that's kind of top of food chain. I would think nothing against Cincinnati, but you know, I mean, that's in the eight, in the eighties and nineties, right? That's yeah. what, yeah. Oh, that's top 1%. I mean, what it's top 1%. Top 1% now. now. 400,000, I think. Is it? Yeah. Something like that. All right. Yeah. So, so just to put it in perspective for radiology, I have not made uh, my salary. Well, actually the salary went down when I came to Austin. It went back down to like a hundred, I think one hundred and twenty-five thousand was the base salary at that time when you started. But there were bonuses, mm -hmm. so uh, and so that was the structure that the group chose. As far as radiology goes, though, I don't think I've made less than a hundred thousand the whole time I've been practicing. Yeah. So from the time I got out. Yeah. So so the Austin thing though this this was an opportunity basically to would you say to become uh, a partner? I mean, is that yes, the structure? Two years, two years to partnership. Uh, and what impressed me about the group was it was a well-established group. They had, uh, they had started in 1952 with about five guys who were ex-military who liked to fly planes and who were all radiologists. And so they flew around the middle of Texas <laughs> providing hospitals with radiology services, you know, mm -hmm. interpreting their x-rays, doing their procedures, and they flew their private plane that they owned for the group around and did this stuff. So mm -hmm. they were trendsetters at that time. Then they evolved into a model where they uh, kind of took the 7-Eleven model and put up an imaging center right next to each major hospital, mm -hmm. also staffing the hospital. And I think that strategy alone made them a more dominant player in the Austin market initially was to take the initiative, staff the hospital, and provide what the hospital couldn't just across the street. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when MRIs first came into being magnetic resonance imaging, uh, some states limited uh, who could have magnets and, and how close magnets could be to each other just for utilization reasons, and Texas was one of those states. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the hospitals couldn't move fast enough to get magnets in place and couldn't get approvals from their networks that were, you know, outside of the Austin area. 
so by the group actually putting in MRIs next to the hospital and showing the revenue stream that could be achieved, the hospitals were able to get their magnets faster because the bigger networks could see the benefit, you know, the revenue benefit. So I think what's what really um, we've held on to and what has made this group exceptional is being a good partner with our hospitals we serve because we're contract workers in the hospital. Yet everything we learn in our practice, we readily share and say, hey, look, you could be doing this too. There's enough pie for all of us to be eating here. Too many people need imaging. You can't provide it all. We can't provide it all. Let's work together and let's make this better. Let's get the best equipment we can in town and let's use it. So, yeah. so did, did you ever have to come out of pocket at all in, in terms of helping to fund or, or finance this, uh, you know, the, the growth, the expansion, the, the business itself? And then how how many partners were there when you joined and how many partners were there when you when you exited? Okay, so uh, like I said, the group started with, I think it was five guys. And then when I came, it was 37 years after their inception and there were 45 partners at that time. Okay. So I came and another lady came on at the same time as me. Uh, so, you know, two years later, we were, you, what the way our structure was at that time was you became a partner in name and then you started paying your, your buy-in. Now, this was right when picture archiving computer systems, PAC systems, which is how all digital images are stored. So it's big storage, you know, think Amazon cloud, but around the corner in your practice. Um, so it was right when that was all coming on board. So the equipment was still expensive. And so our buy-in took years. They would just take it out of our salary and bonuses until we paid off our buy-in uh, because all of that equipment, you know, the practice had never had to invest in that before. And all of a sudden they did, we happened to be right at that cusp. So yes, that's how the buy-in worked. And then, um, you know, like if you look at our stats in 2012, per we had 83.5 full-time radiologists or FTE equivalents in 2012 doing 19,162 procedures each per year. Wow. Okay. So that comes out to be one, 0.6 million procedures in a year. If you just multiply that by the $40 that Medicare reimburses us for a two view chest x-ray series, that comes out to 64 million in revenue mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in 2012. Yeah. We've experienced 5% growth per year. We now, uh, right before our exit, which was February had, uh, let's see, a hundred full-time FTEs and 14 part-time radiologists, so mm -hmm. 114. Mm -hmm. And our volume has not changed. Like I said, the volume wow. has grown, you know, 5% per year. Wow. Uh, we have 17 outpatient imaging centers we own. We serve 20 hospitals. You do the math. I mean, mm -hmm. and you know. yeah, no, I mean, obviously it's, uh, I mean, kudos to you and congrats on, uh, on that. So was this, uh, was this a concerted effort then to find a buyer for for the group or how, how did the exit actually end up happening and then are you still employed by them or is there a buyout period like how, how is that all structured well i'm under a non-disclosure agreement so yeah. i can share with you what has been publicly published yeah um so uh our group we did not seek uh this 
at all mm -hmm. yet. One thing that has made our group successful over the years is staying ahead of trends. And, you know, we know there are three types of people who are our partners in our group. There are people who are motivated by money. There are people who are motivated by time or freedom. And there are people who are motivated by power. And we try to use those, those strengths of our, our radiologists in ways that serve the group as a collective. Mm -hmm. And many of those people who are motivated by power or money, you know, they keep tabs on the economy and sure. what's happening big picture for medicine. Well, medicine has been consolidating for many, many years. And eventually that trickled to radiology. And as, as medicine continued to consolidate and radiology started consolidating, it was obvious that if we wanted to keep hospital contracts, we were going to have to, you know, if you're sitting at a play at a table with big boys and girls that are international or national, you need to have more than just a central Texas. I mean, Texas is a big state, but, you know, the middle of it is not the same as being national, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're going to be taken seriously, you've got to puff up your feathers and look big somehow. So that was the impetus that one of our retreats, we said, well, how can we be bigger than we are? Yeah. What's possible? And we started looking at opportunities to look bigger? You know, do we become a statewide practice? Do we join with some other mega practices in the state? Do we look at something that's more national? What do we do here? So first we had a strategic alliance and then we actually went ahead and, um, you know, looked into this deal and explored it. And their groups is the largest physician led and physician owned diagnostic imaging uh, national practice group in the country. Mm -hmm. um, I think they serve 850 hospitals. And so that's who acquired our group. You know, we sold our practice to their group and became partners in the larger national practice. Mm -hmm. So again, it's a buy-in process. So, you know, there's, you know, it's going to take two years before I'm starting to see the benefits of that buy-in with mm -hmm. my particular deal. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm very happy to have the opportunity to look at how we can influence radiology as a whole and utilization really cut down on utilization where it's not necessary. Yeah. Virginia, you uh, just want to dominate here, man. Oh, I, I mean, <laughs> I have, there's so many different ways we could go down. I, I first, I don't know if we actually truly clarified the qualification at the beginning, like you normally do. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've alluded to it a couple of times yeah. that there was an exit, but yeah. Um, yeah, point well taken. So I know, I, and Laura, you can speak to that. I mean, obviously, there's certain things I know you can't publicly disclose. But uh, when you're talking about the exit itself, it's safe to say that's the exit, not just for your shares, but the exit, of course, for for the entire business. And what did you say you were doing 40, 40 bucks over a million nine, which was like, uh, or a million 40 bucks over a million was like 60 odd 60. million in revenue in 2012. So let me, let me ask you this then, and and so to that point, and thanks, Richie, for the reminder on that. I, I know your story, so I've been able to, I, I I know the answers here, but the obviously those listening don't quite know this. So how was valuation? How do you value a company that does what you guys do? Do you know how that well, was all figured in? It it was difficult. Uh, luckily, already in other areas of medicine, um, these types of sales had been going on, especially in like the field of um, uh, radiation oncology and also in the field of oncology in general, pathology had done this, uh, emergency medicine had done this, neonatology. 
So there were some models, but the fact that we were kind of the hybrid of owning our own imaging centers and being in hospitals was kind of a zebra, kind of a unicorn. So, uh, you know, we tried to, we did not try, a, a lot of times, you know, when you're looking at a, a buyout, you try to beef up that EBITDA, right? Mm -hmm. and, and make sure that it's as much as you can possibly get on the sale. We did not do that at all. We truly wanted to value it in a conservative way so that we made sure we were good stewards in the process and really were providing the national with what they thought they were getting. Mm -hmm. So we probably lowballed it. So at, you know, at, at the end of the day, though, it was a... We had an external group come in and evaluate every aspect of our practice. Mm -hmm. And because the, the larger national practice had been acquiring practices, you know, right and left all day long, yeah. they had a system they used. So mm -hmm. we followed their system. They were happy with the modifications for the outpatient imaging centers, and we came up with a figure. Yeah. I mean, is it, is it safe to say that, it, it was at least one or two X revenue at that point, something of that nature. I mean, I think you're saying it was based on EBITDA and, and that's just sort of commonplace there, but from, from, from a general valuation standpoint was, I mean, were we at least at one X or, or potentially two or, or greater X on revenue? Yes. And yes. And okay. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how they meet the criteria of, of beyond eight figures. There yeah, exactly. And then at the end of the day, there was, um, what'd you say, a around almost 100 partners, but some of them probably weren't fully vested, right? Because there's, it wouldn't be, how does that work exactly? Because that wouldn't be fair. I mean, if somebody just came on and they were a fairly new addition to, to the group, they shouldn't be as vested or have as as much of a position as the as the original five, as an example, right? Who started this thirty something odd years ago? How, how, do you know how you guys worked that? What 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 did that look like? Well, yes the the side of the story you're telling is the side of the story that people in the group who'd been there, you know, twenty or so years, tended to tell. And that's how they felt that, you know, they had contributed so much. And, you know, at the bottom, you, the bottom you, line. You would be in that basket, though. Absolutely. Right. And, and here's, this, here's their side of the story. I got out of my training. I signed up to be in this practice. I'm in my buy-in chain. And I thought I was buying into this amazing practice that's independently owned and operated by Texas radiologist that I know, love, and trust. And now all of a sudden, you guys who are older and have more seniority are pulling the rug out from under me, and I'm getting something I didn't want. I never asked for. I never knew existed. I'm stuck. Mm. So that was their side of the story. So um, what we've noticed in our group over the years is that when we're at board meetings and we do a straw poll vote on something and about half the room votes one way and half the room votes the other way. Sounds like America. We don't have the right answer. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. usually when we move forward on something, we're almost unanimous. Wow. When it works. That's mm -hmm. a trend we've noticed. So if we have a, an answer that's half and half, we go back to the drawing board and say, okay, what else is possible? And what we came up with was a way to accelerate the buy-in for everybody who was kind of in the chain so that everybody was equal. 
And we actually, as partners, took a cut so that that would be possible for them because we felt mm. so strongly about keeping the practice intact and making sure everybody really got what they what they thought they were getting or something close, mm -hmm. the closest we could make it to what they thought they were getting. Yeah. I did have one more, well, a question specifically to the this end, and don't worry, I'm not going to go into the exact, what, I, I get why you said <laughs> part of the NDA, I'm sure. Um, but there obviously was more money, even though that was a lot of money, than the $40 reimbursed by Medicare. I, I doubt anybody's going to, try to build a business on just getting reimbursed $40 from Medicare each patient and have to build that many to get it. So what was the actual model? Did they, they got diagnosed with something at the hospital. They had to go next door because the hospital didn't do it. They had to get something done. They paid you X amount of money. And then that was kind of just almost like a subsidy back the $40 or, or what was, what was that process? And kind of how much was involved with that? Because it seems like, it, well, first I'll answer that, and then I'll, I'll tell you why I asked that. Okay, I'm not sure I understand your question. Um, so what happens in imaging is... I can't picture someone just paying $40 is my main point, right? Like I can't... A radiologist's uh, yeah, time is going to be... Hey, let, me, let me tell you. You think that's bad. The Medicaid rate is 25% of that. So as a pediatric radiologist... 10 bucks? Yes. But you got to be billing for other parts of the depends. It depends. So that's let's get into this question. Yeah, so, you, so now you see really, where I'm going. Really <laughs> on and and this is what made our practice. This is one of those things that made our practice successful. Is we understand this and we pay attention to it. Mm. And some people in medicine don't, so they never accumulate wealth. They never have a successful practice, and they never accumulate wealth. They don't pay attention to the details. Mm -hmm. So if you have an imaging study done somewhere, then if the um, facility, whoever the facility is that actually takes the x-ray, let's say you go in and you're having a chest x-ray, uh, the facility who takes the x-ray can charge a technical fee. Now, the radiologist who interprets that x-ray charges a professional fee. So there are two types of fees, okay? Mm -hmm. So those are the standard fees that someone takes. So like if you go to the hospital and get the x-ray and I'm contracted to read it, the hospital gets the technical part, right? Because they're taking the x-ray and I get the professional part because I'm reading the x-ray because I'm contracted with them. Now, you know, depending on bundled care and all of that, an x-ray, if you've had, let's say you're in the ICU and you've had an x-ray every day, whether you needed it or not, just because it was the protocol in that hospital to do x-rays every day on anybody in the ICU, then I'm not getting paid anything and neither mm. is the hospital. Mm. Okay. Yikes. So that's the kind of thing that a national practice has the ability to help stop. And that's how Smart doctors like radiologists in big groups can make a difference and make medical care better for everybody is saying, hey, this, is, this utilization doesn't help. Let's stop doing this. Let's not let hospitals systems do that. That's not necessary. Mm. Not helping the patient. Nobody's making money from it. Why are we doing this? Yeah. And it's interesting too, Steve, because as we've done these shows, we've seen the importance of the team. Right. It comes up over and over and over again. Sure. And and yeah. had there not been people on your team 
that understood and did care about the money that much, this may have not been discovered, right? Like everyone had their strong suit and they stayed in their lane, it sounds like. But at the same time, you guys knew, to your point earlier there, if if you drew straws and it was 50-50, you knew it probably wasn't the right answer because there wasn't enough buy-in from the whole team. How was there somebody leading that whole team that kind of saw that and kept it balanced or what was that? Cause this is super unique. We don't normally have a, a, a guest like this in a situation like this with so many different moving parts. So mm-hmm. how was that? How did that come about? Well, so most medical practices are small groups you know, private medical practices are small groups of doctors, or they're kind of a multi-specialty mega group that'll have 300 physicians and runs more like a corporation. So uh, I think for us, um, the big turning point was recognizing when we were big enough to need to have more of a corporate structure rather than thinking like most doctors think, me guilty too, that we can do everything, right? I'm a smart doctor. I can do, I can do that. I can, I can figure out the tech on that. Oh, mm-hmm. I can put the packs together. Oh, I can, you know, so once we gave up that and really started running ourselves like a corporation and uh, hired our first CEO and, and learned a lot from some mistakes and then, you know, got our, our second CEO and, and did a better job with that. A CEO who was not a doctor um, that made a difference. And it was critical that the CEO not view us as a commodity, as something to be sold. Mm-hmm. Because we're professionals, we own the practice, and we never wanted to lose that. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, it was it, now, and you have to understand, we've got like a thousand employees as well, you know, so. Yeah, it's not just the doctors, there's the other employees as well. You can't run yeah. outpatient imaging centers without thousands of helpers. So we have about a thousand employees, but, um, you know, once, once we gave up having to hold so tightly to the control and expanded it into working corporate structure, it really helped us to grow a lot Mm -hmm. and to be able to follow those numbers more precisely. It made all the difference. Yeah. Let, Let me, let me ask you this. So having been through it and been on more the entrepreneurial side of the, of the, medicinal equation here, if you will, would you do anything differently now looking back in terms of your career, in terms of buying into this practice or becoming a part of this practice? Would you, would you have changed anything now that you're looking back? Were there decisions that you made that you regret? What, what's, what's hindsight telling you? Um, I think, well, as an individual, no. I mean, this absolutely best decision uh, ever made was leaving academics and going into private practice. And, you know, everybody told me not to do that, that I'd be bored out of my mind. Mm -hmm. And they were so wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's just been the best of both worlds Mm -hmm. uh, in in our particular setting. Um, Because now we've even got a medical school. So I get to do the academics too again. Oh, wow. It's really really the best of everything. Yeah. but as far as from, a, from looking at it as a business owner uh, standpoint, I think it took us, again, because of that tight control sometimes that, you know, autonomous 
entrepreneurs want to have. It's that same struggle. It's like whenever you can let go of that and give more, become a leader instead of just the doer, that is the thing I think if we'd have gotten to that faster, it would have helped us a little bit. Mm -hmm. Also, um, having a clear exit path for people who no longer were, um, in medicine, you know, you can pretty much practice until you drop dead. You know, there are no laws that say you have to stop at a certain age. Mm -hmm. And I, I think if we'd have, that's, that's one area that maybe we could have thought about differently about how to assist people in knowing that it's okay to do something else. Sure. Um, it's hard when you, when you have something that's so rewarding for people to want to leave you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I think helping people understand that there are other things outside. I, not that I, everybody in my practice has something amazing outside of our practice, you know, like they're world champion rowers and all kinds of crazy things. Mm -hmm. But um, still with that transition, it seemed like the older radiologists, when they would transition out, were really fearful about it. And I can say, you know, I've, I've considered that myself. I haven't done it yet, but have considered that. And it is scary to think yeah. about this is so exciting what else could be this exciting every day mm -hmm. so do you do you plan i mean now that the exit uh, has has happened do you plan on continuing to do what you were doing or are you planning on slowing down or, or is there again i think you sort of alluded it alluded to it earlier but i didn't i didn't get the exact number there 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 is a vesting period there's yeah. okay so what so what's your plan now and is is that a similar plan to the partners or are you finding that a lot of the partners uh, are having sort of these transitionary all of us have the same, all of us have the same plan it's mm -hmm. all fair balanced and equal um and it but you know to get total advantage out of the whole thing it's a five-year process and um you know it's the process of, of this transition has opened my eyes to so many other possibilities mm -hmm. for making money. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've, I've, whenever, whenever you reach some new milestone in your, in your net worth, it's helpful to change your peer group so that you get some new perspectives. And I did that. Mm -hmm. I'm big into masterminds and mentorship and, you know, some of the new mentors, Steve is one of my mentors. Yeah. Uh, some of the new mentors I have have really opened my eyes into different ways to make money. So the question is, is can I entertain myself? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't, I haven't quite figured out the answer to that yet. Uh, so as soon as I've convinced myself that I can entertain myself and mm -hmm. be excited about it, uh, you know, I may consider something different mm -hmm. yet for the short term you know, it's just so easy to continue doing what you're doing. It's yeah. hard to walk away from. Yeah, I mean, the money's good. The the buyout is uh, going to be maximized. As it sounds about the, the buyout will be maximized, obviously, if you stay the duration. So there's plenty of upside for you to, to see this all the way through. If you could picture mm, perhaps a, a different life for yourself then five years down the line after this has been seen all the way through what, what would be an ideal scenario for you from a career and a, and a life perspective uh, at, at the point of, of being able to say okay thanks and uh, and cut that rope well 
I think it's important for anybody in any profession to have an alternative that they could pivot to at any point that they need to, because, you know, it all, when you get it right down to it, the job is not what's important in life, right? It's the people. It's your relationships with people you love. Mm-hmm. And if, if your job or career or your profession is getting in the way of you maximizing your relationships with the people you love, then it's not worth it. You might as well, you know, you'd be better off flipping burgers at the hamburger stand next door to your house than spending all your time just to make more money. So for me, it's helping other physicians. Like I mentioned earlier, most physicians never accumulate any significant wealth. Mm -hmm. The numbers for women physicians to accumulate greater than 500, let's see, wait a minute, let me get this number straight. For women physicians to accumulate a total net worth of over $5 million, less than 3%. Mm-hmm. And how, does men, that, how does that compare to the general population, though? I bet that's probably much, like, the number of people who give, you know what I mean? Like, it, it sounds it sounds low, but in the scheme of things, 3% of any profession I would think accumulating five million in, in wealth is probably pretty darn good, right? Like they spend money just like anybody else, but 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 obviously you have a love for this and you have an affinity for helping female physicians, basically doctors who are women, to accumulate wealth and retire in in a wealthy way. I kind of reading between the lines, but five million in in retirement, that's got to be one percent of or less the population anyway. Right. So, but, but it just sounds like you've got an affinity for that particular group. Well, I, I have an affinity for people who have already invested 12 to 15 years past high school in becoming specialized in helping other people and then spending 30 to 40 years of their lives doing it and then turning around and not being able to pay for their own health care. Mm. Yeah. So I want people who have devoted that much to helping other people to at least be able to take care of themselves mm. until they die. Yeah. So that's it. where my passion lies. <laughs> yeah. I get that Richie. So yeah, that actually opens up some of the questions I wanted to say earlier. Um, so how much of that is one that they came in to be a physician and they knew nothing about business? That's one part. Um, how much of that could possibly be after 12 years of schooling, they're running massive debt that they got to catch up with and pay on. And then, um, you know, just the stress of those two things in and of themselves, and then always helping others kind of to your point, like how, what do you have you found kind of a secret sauce or I mean, maybe that has something to do with your book. <laughs> like, I don't know. And I yeah. swear I wasn't just trying to lead into that. But yeah. like, what have you found anything? Because it seems like those two first things of, you know, Sally, the baker is really good at baking, but that doesn't mean she can open a bakery. Exactly. Right? So mm-hmm. what have you noticed now that you've gone through that whole process and looking back and trying to help people that is the maybe one or two things that can help them right out of the gate? Well, for one, uh, the, there was a pivot point in the 90s where the AMA started treating medicine as a trade rather than as a profession, and that's when I stopped being a member of the American Medical Association because medicine is a profession, and it is recognized as a profession, and there are advantages to being professionals rather than just tradespeople. 
So that's one distinction that after that changed, residents, like young people going into medicine, had a different mindset about what they were doing, a different commitment level. Mm-hmm. So helping them to understand here's what it takes to be a professional in business and be successful. You don't get that in medical school. And some people, they're so focused on getting into medical school, they're not paying attention to any of that in college either. Or, you know, they're the party people anyway and aren't paying attention to anything in college, you know, and then they find themselves in medical school and then they just take the first job they can get. And, you know, they just keep Mm -hmm. jumping through the hoops, not paying attention. And all of a sudden they're at the end of their career and don't have any alternatives. So that's number one. Yes, they don't have any business experience. And honestly, what you get in school may not help you be successful in business. I'm sure y'all heard that many times on this show. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know? So, uh, yes, I mean, I, I, I totally promote schools that teach entrepreneurship and people who promote entrepreneurship. That's who I promote. Uh, so I'm constantly, as a mentor, and I'm, you know, I have a podcast myself called The Doctor's Mentor Show. That's what I'm teaching is, you know, here's where you can learn this so you don't make this mistake. Or, oh, you want a podcast? Well, here's what you have to do to be profitable with a podcast. You know, so those are the, the kinds of things that's like, uh, you don't get that in, I, even if you took a class in that in medical school, you wouldn't get the right information, in my opinion, mm-hmm. having this private practice experience that I've had to be successful in that. So that's number one. As far as the rest, you know, it's interesting. Medscape does these, they they do these surveys every year. And I've followed this now for like about 15 years, trying to look at the trends. And I honestly don't know. I have some ideas, but I don't know for sure. I think perhaps women in medicine make a choice not to pursue, um, not, you know, they make a family choice or maybe they have a secondary, maybe their career is the secondary career in the home. Mm -hmm. So they make a different choice about how they use their wealth or how they accumulate it or, or whatever. So I'm, I'm not really sure about the women's piece. It's not clear to me from the data at all. And it's not clear to anybody else from the data at all, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because all that's analyzed by people who are better at analyzing data than me. Um, the, the, but the one thing that is clear is that, um, oh, mercy, I just forgot the point. <laughs> yeah, just about women who were trying to retire. The... No, it was, it was something that you had said earlier. It was one of the things you had suggested, and it was really critical. So Possibly the see. debt. The debt, yes. So doctors, like when I came out of medical school, medical school, I had no debt. My medical school was twelve hundred dollars a year. What? The, my tuition was twelve hundred dollars a year to go to medical school. It was so it's nothing. I had mm. no debt after medical school. I started saving for retirement my first day on the job as a resident. Mm. Most people who get out of medical school now, they've accumulated over two hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of debt. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. And then they're being paid less than medical minimum wage for at least five or six years. So they're not getting out of that debt. Instead, they're just accumulating more debt because it's expensive to live next door to the hospital, wherever they're living to do their training. So there's terrible stress on them and a terrible hole to to crawl out of financially. Um, And that's why that's one of the reasons that that played into our decision 
we made as partners as to how we would treat the younger people in our group. You know, I mean, we're not the ones who faced all that. Yeah. They're the ones. You know, and look, obviously, there's there's so much more that we could cover here. I want to give you an opportunity to talk about uh, the, the book. First of all, Think and Grow Well, which is the name of uh, of your book. What What is that about? Who is it intended for? Just give us an understanding of uh, just what, what's the book all about and why did you write it? So Think and Grow Well is actually a book written for anyone who is interested in learning how they can be prepared before they have a physical health crisis, how they can strengthen their mind, their body, their spirit, and their awareness to be prepared before a health crisis strikes. Mm -hmm. Just like, you know, I, I mean, everybody worries about having the insurance on the rental car after they've had the accident in the rental car, right? Yeah. You're not worried at the counter when the guy's up selling you. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, it's, it's a preventative uh, and I wrote it because of what I said earlier about the mental tattoo. What I noticed in practicing radiology was there were these people who once they knew they had a disease, they became the disease. But the survivors that I've met along my journey, journey as a professional in medicine are the people who identified themselves as people who had a disease mm -hmm. and who were willing to work with that disease to live the best life they could. Not necessarily to fight the disease. Think of more like Aikido. It's like taking the energy from the disease and turning it back on the disease rather than putting aggressive energy into fighting the disease. Mm -hmm. It's really working with the disease. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really helping people strengthen those mental muscles and, and you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, and uh, with awareness so that they are prepared when the disease strikes, because some disease will strike someone in your family, I guarantee you, before yeah. you die, and you will be personally affected. And if you have the communication skills inside yourself and with other people ahead of time and have practiced them, then you definitely will come out better and have a better life for it. So that's who it's written for, for anyone. And, and that's why I wrote that book. I'm more specific about mentoring doctors in my doctor's mentor efforts. But yeah. the most important message is anyone can live a healthy life and take responsibility for their health if they're willing to put a little time and practice in. Yeah. So, and so again, that's the, the book, Think and Grow Well. And then, as you said, you have your own podcast. And one more time, the, the name of, uh, of that show? The Doctor's Mentor Show. Mm -hmm. And who, so who's the ideal listener for, for that show? Who should be tuning in? The people who tune into the Doctor's Mentor Show who benefit the most are health professionals, doesn't have to be a doctor, but somebody who's put their time in and they are a health professional and who want more than just a, a job, who mm -hmm. are looking to accumulate wealth, who are looking to accumulate a, the freedom that you can exchange your currency for so that you have time to have your best life ever and to take care of yourself. I mean, the problem I see is, you know, the, <laughs> the smoking technologist, you know, outside the hospital. And I'm yeah. like, why are you smoking? You're, you're a technologist. You work in a hospital. Mm -hmm. It's for those people. It's like, it doesn't have to be that way. You mm -hmm. can take care of yourself and make money and serve people. Yeah. And, and just so everybody's clear, I mean, Dr. Lori obviously has a number of things going on, not the least of which is, you know, your, your money is important, but it's certainly not the end all be all for you by any stretch. I know you've been really actively involved 
uh, with uh, with uh, the creation of the but the children's hospital, I think of uh, of Austin. I mean, something you brought in. Would, would you bring in Michael Dell and and some of the the bigger donors there? Would tell us just a little bit more about that in the last um, couple minutes here. Just want to make sure that people understand. There's a lot of give back here that you that you do as well. So just want yeah. folks to understand that too. So um, when I was recruited to Austin. The Children's Hospital of Austin was literally the armpit hanging off of the charity hospital in town. The radiology department consisted of a closet that had been turned into an ultrasound room, one x-ray machine, and one fluoroscopy machine, which is video x-rays. That was it. Mm. Uh, The hospital had been given a small seed grant by the Dell Foundation to transform that into a more robust imaging center. And because I had such grant writing experience in academics, we were able to leverage the results of that grant and say, hey, look, look at how many people we helped now that we have this equipment. What else would be possible if we renovated the whole hospital and Mm -hmm. made it a real children's hospital? Mm -hmm. So because of the results of that one grant and the way we made sure the Dell Foundation knew their money was well invested. They were willing to give a significant uh, grant for the formation of the Dell Children's Medical Center. And the way they structured that was we'll give half or we'll we'll give half. We we asked that the corporate, you know, the network give half and then we'll split the other half with community donations. So uh, I am, I, I was, I am not right now because my obligation is to, serving my family more specifically right now. But uh, I was on the board of the foundation, the board of trustees of the foundation of the Dell Children's Hospital. And we were able to raise that money in the community to match the Dell gift. Mm. And then the corporation, you know, the hospital corporation gave the rest of the money. And we were able to have a world-class hospital right here in Austin, kind of like what I had in Cincinnati. That's awesome. (laughs) All right. Well, Dr. Lori Barr, we're going to have to let you jump here. And if people want to get more information uh, about you, where, where's the best place for them to go? I think the best place is to just go to drlauriebar.com. Okay. Sounds like a plan. Really appreciate you joining us here on Beyond Age Figures. Congrats on the exit. Congrats on uh, all the you know philanthropic work that you've done as well and everything else that you've got going on there in the world of Dr. Lori Barr. Thank you so much, Richie Ote. I'm Steve Olsher. We'll talk to you guys next time here on Beyond Age Figures.